Hello, and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Renard Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. His most recent paper, co-authored with Toby Dodge, is titled Politically Sanctioned Corruption and Barriers to Reform in Iraq. It's available on the Chatham House website. Renard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by asking you, what is the current situation that ordinary Iraqis are faced with? Has life improved at all under the leadership of Prime Minister Mustafa al-Khadami? Well, I mean, I think we've seen uh, this past week and actually in, in, in these days uh, with the temperature, for example, uh, in, in Iraq going up to the 50s now, life is hard for you know, ordinary Iraqis. They, they have yet to have basic services. They don't have, elec- you know, electricity is being cut, water is cut. Many of them are unemployed. Many of them are, are finding it difficult to make it, sort of earn a, a standard or decent uh, life or income, let's say. So I would say that it's the same story that Iraqis since 2003 have, have been facing, which is a really a, a government that's unable to provide for, for their, in their basic needs. And although there was quite a bit of hope with the sort of emergence of Prime Minister Mustafa al-Kazami, someone who claimed that he was representing the grievances and, and, and he would reform incrementally the system. It's been uh, over a year of his premiership and I think Iraqis are seeing the same old story. So life, I would say, is, 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 is quite dire for many Iraqis across the country. Yeah, I was in Basra in 2003, just after the war ended. And there were issues then about electricity, about poor drinking water, high unemployment, violence. And here we are 18 years on and the situation hasn't gotten any better. Yeah. If you look at, you know, how the government has attempted to govern over the last, you know, almost two decades now, Iraq is a very wealthy country, obviously driven by oil resources. The fact that this government and its leaders and the same old cast of characters have really been unable to solve some of the more basic you know, it's not basic, it's quite complicated, but basic life needs for, for their people, whilst themselves becoming incredibly wealthy, um, is, is a tragedy. And, you know, year after year, uh, it's, it's almost expected. You know, this past year, I was, I was in Iraq a few times, and especially off the back of a very hard drought, I think it became difficult, uh, and it became clear that again, the summer will come, again, these challenges will come, and, and, the, and the leadership know this will happen, but they just don't, they haven't been able to figure it out. And some would argue they haven't really been interested in figuring out those kind of needs, like providing uh, that the type of electricity that would be a basic sort of human right. There is a parliamentary election scheduled for October. Will it make any difference to the hard realities that ordinary Iraqis are facing? So I think that elections were meant to be 
uh, one of the main indicators of, of democracy after 2003 in Iraq. The U.S., its allies, uh, the Iraqi opposition who came to rule the country, really uh, wanted to show that it is through elections that Iraqis could finally have a voice after you know the years of dictatorship under Saddam Hussein. But what we've actually seen with elections is that they've become a kind of self-reinforcing exercise where the same political parties, the same leaders, they uh, all come together, put themselves on, on the ballot, they each have their own social base, and so their constituents vote for them. And it's become incredibly difficult for any kind of alternative or opposition to, to emerge. And I think because of that, to me, when I look at Iraqi elections, the main thing that I look at is the turnout. In 2005, the voter turnout was almost 80%. Iraqis voting for the first time went to the polls and really thought, you know, this is something new that's happening and this is different to, to, to years and years of, 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 of totalitarian sort of dictator rule. If you look at the voter turnout in the most recent elections, in 2018, the voter turnout was under 30%, right? So more and more Iraqis who are in this sort of a voting age no longer believe that it is through elections where they will have a voice. They don't think that elections can actually bring about change. I think it's become very clear that many Iraqis will not vote. And I think that is the, 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 the sort of challenge moving forward. Iraqis are losing their, their ability to have a voice and, and, and basically they've become overwhelmed by this political system. And uh, a big part of that is corruption. Now, in the, in the paper you co-authored with Toby Dodge, you used the phrase politically sanctioned corruption, which you write is facilitated in part through these special grades, Al-Dirajat Al-Hasa scheme. Can you expand on that for our listeners? Well, the argument that we make uh, in, in this paper uh, that we wrote for the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House is that often corruption in Iraq has been understood as a drive for personal wealth accumulation, personal greed, as a personal exercise, things like bribery uh, or one-off contracting and this and that. But Toby and I, when we wrote this paper, and, and, and it's off the back of a few years of research, um, you know, meeting with, with many, many ministers, prime ministers, presidents, as well as civil servants and, and, and others, diplomats who are engaging from the international perspective in Iraq. What we realize is that there's a bigger story to corruption, and that is actually when corruption becomes part of the political system in an unaccountable structure. So we, we, we argued that although the kind of personal greed corruption is there, the bigger root the biggest barrier to any kind of reform, to fixing things like electricity that we've been talking about or water, is this politically sanctioned corruption. It's this elite pact that's been formed as all of the political parties and political leaders come together to divide the spoils of the war and to go into state coffers to, to, to become incredibly wealthy. And so one of the main functions that we found to embody that politically sanctioned corruption is this, you know, as you say, al-dirajat al-khasa, the special grades. And there's about, you know, 900 or so positions across the Iraqi state, the civil service, where the political parties have planted senior civil servants across ministries and other agencies who represent their interests 
who support them and, and, and ensure that contracting is, works favorably for them, effectively who in the parties that they represent in an unaccountable structure. And so when you have prime ministers who are you know, independent technocrats, when you have ministers, cabinet ministers who are independent technocrats, often they are at the behest of their own civil servants, of their own assistants and aides. And this kind of scheme is really, you know, the argument that Toby and I make in the paper is that this is how we should understand power and corruption in Iraq. That one of the reasons why reform doesn't work, one of the reasons why someone like Mustafa al-Kavami, who comes in and says all the right things, but is effectively unable to, to pursue reform, is because we shouldn't be looking at the kind of formal side of the sta- you know, state, or at least the top of the state. We should be looking in the middle, the heart of, of, of the state, where political parties, through their proxies in the civil service, are able to become incredibly wealthy through uh, these schemes. It's interesting, isn't it, Renad? Because one of the supposed strengths of Mustafa al-Khadami was that he wasn't tied to any political party. He didn't owe any political party. But that's turning out, as your research has shown, to be a, a great weakness. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, he's a prime minister who doesn't have a political party. So really, in the parliament, in the legislature, he's very weak. He doesn't have much influence over a heavily politicized judiciary. So, you know, the the legal system isn't on, on his side in that way. And he doesn't really have many strong supporters. So, you know, if you think about it, he's probably one of the weaker elements of the Iraqi state even though he's supposed to be formally the head of state. He's by far one of the weaker elements. And, and even some of these uh, armed groups that have emerged or, or, or political parties that, that continue to rule have more connectivity to parliament, have more connectivity to the legislature than he does. So he's kind of like this island uh, talking about reform, trying to kind of do things here and there, but is really disconnected from state power in, in many important ways. And where this is abundantly and tragically clear is in the attempts to control and bring under his authority the militias, the Hastoshabi, because they're active, uh, most recent case, an activist murdered that he promised there would be accountability and he's had to back away from that. Yeah, that's right. And this, again, goes into the, the story of, you know, Mustafa al-Kadhimi as a kind of island separated to some extent from many aspects of state power. So, you know, these armed groups uh, and, and, and militias that are linked to al-Hajj al-Sha'bi, I think it, we, we can't kind of look at them simply as militias or as armed groups. But they are, you know, and and I wrote a paper on this earlier this year, they are networks of power. In their networks include cabinet ministers, uh, the the special grades, you know, civil servants that we've been talking about in the Darajat al-Khalsa, even provincial council members, uh, businessmen, even humanitarian organizations. I mean, they are a network. They are a political force that span across the Iraqi state, right? So when the prime minister attempts to arrest one of theirs, they have more connection to Iraq's legislature because, you know, the, the party that represents the, the Hashid Fatih came second 
in the election in 2018. So they have quite a few, they have quite a bit of power in the parliament, much more power than Kaavumi has. And also they have connectivity to the judiciary, working with other powerful brokers, such as former Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki and others who are close to them. So the point here is that they are not just a militia or a non-state actor or some of these words that have been used to describe them, but they're very much an armed group that has a political force inside the Iraqi state. And so any kind of integration effort by someone like Mustafa al-Kazami, who is a f- largely powerless and effectiveless, won't work. And I think that's one of the main reasons why, for many, many years now, issues such as security sector reform and integrating these militias hasn't worked because they've been premised on a kind of false reading of what the reality actually is in Iraq. And so step one is to acknowledge that the problem isn't only with these armed groups, but the problem is actually with the entire structure of the Iraqi state that allows political parties with their affiliated armed groups, whether it's these militias or you know all political parties in Iraq that have armed groups, to be unaccountable and to continue through the corruption and, and, and other issues that, that we've seen. And as you say, it turns tragic when many of these groups begin to turn on civil society, begin to turn on activists, uh, and, and, and what we've seen is they get away with it through impunity, not necessarily because they have you know guns, although the guns are important, but fundamentally because they are sanctioned by, to some extent, the state. Yes, and, and can you speak about some of those activists? A colleague of yours, Hisham al-Hashimi, was murdered and no accountability. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, Hisham al-Hashimi was a, was a good friend of mine and, and for many, many years, especially, you know, beginning during the, the ISIS years, he began doing a lot of important work on sort of especially in the security analyst side, analysis side of, of Iraq. And it's coming almost to a year, just a few days off a year since his assassination. And it's important to keep in mind that, that one of the main reasons for his assassination was because it was a message to the prime minister because he was sort of perceived to be close to the prime minister, advising the prime minister or, or working in the kind of that security space, let's say, as an analyst, although he was independent. But there are, you know, many, many, there are numerous over the last few years, activists, researchers, journalists who have been assassinated, unlawfully detained, tortured uh, by different types of groups. And as, as I say, they are basically reacting to a threat to the system. These activists who are calling for the sort of, who are calling effectively for a mass change. They're no longer interested in incremental reform. The activists are calling for a revolution. You know, they view view themselves as, as revolutionaries. So to some extent, yes, these are unlawful groups outside the system who are, you know, conducting heinous acts, but they get away with it. And to me, that is the large, that is also a massive tragedy. And, and they're allowed to get away with it because, as I say, they are connected to powerful people inside the Iraqi state. So to go back to Hisham's case, you know, most in the Iraqi leadership know who the killers are. They know where they fled to. And yet they don't have the ability not even to arrest them, not even they, to, to even release the names. And this has been something that the protesters have been calling for. All of the assassinations, many of which have been caught in broad daylight, often on on, on camera, CCTV, 
no no names have been released nothing has been done to to really convince iraqis that this government is willing or able to stop the impunity of those who are killing innocent civilians yes it it speaks so strongly to the weakness of his position but i wanted to ask you um about the image that uh, iraq is often presented as little more than an extension of Iranian influence, a, a big chunk of the so-called Shia crescent. But that ignores the resentment that many Iraqis feel and the consequences, too, of Iran's constant presence and meddling. Can Iraq free itself of Iran? And if so, how will that be accomplished? Yeah, I think there are two points here. Um, the first point is that you know, this assumption that, that Iraq is automatically part of Iran and, and its, its influence is, 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 as you say, and has been sort of proven, especially in more recent years, very problematic. Iraqis view Iran as an external occupying force, the same way they viewed uh, the U.S., as an external occupying force after 2003. And so many Iraqis, and here we're talking, by the way, not just, you know, we're talking primarily of Shi Iraqis, Shia Iraqis, who uh, were, at some point there was an assumption that because the Iraqis are, these Iraqis are Shia, and because most Iranians are Shia, there's going to be this kind of Shia uh, crescent or, or this kind of camaraderie. However, what's been, what's been proven or what's been seen revealed has been that the Iraqi, na Iraqi nationalism is still there and that Iraqis are tired of having external interference in their country. And so the strongest external actor interfering in Iraq today is Iran. And so much of the sentiment from the protest movements, uh, as well as from just in general, is a reaction to Iran's interference. And again, we can go back to, you know, the topic of this week, which is electricity. One of the reasons that Iraqis don't have electricity or enough electricity is because Iraq has been uh, has become rel reliant on Iran for electricity, right? And this year, Iran has its own issues in many different ways, partly because they want to supply their own people with electricity, but also partly for political reasons, it's able to use this as a bargaining, as leverage and bargaining to, to, to pressure the leadership. And of course, at the end of the day, it's the Iraqis who are now today uh, suffering from almost 50, if not 50 degrees Celsius with no electricity because it's been cut. So this is all to them. The Iraqis see this as Iran and Iran's influence, but also the fact that many of Iraq's political parties have relations with Iran and have been part of this system and, and also benefit from relations from Iran. So I would say that, yes, Iran is seen as a the most problematic uh, in sort of influential force externally in Iraq. And so it has a lot of resentment, but also the Iraqis see their own leaders, especially those that are close to Iran, as, as being problematic in that way as well. And I suppose, too, in addition to the pressures that the Iranians can bring to bear on the electricity grid, that uh, the the situation within the country, the corruption you've described, also uh, is responsible for much of these uh, huge shortages at a really critical time now as we head into summer and very, very hot weather. Yeah. And of course, again, the, the, I guess the point uh, I was trying to make is that it's Iran is able to get away with a lot of this, not only because it's 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 a powerful uh, regional force, 
but because there are people within the Iraqi system who are also part of it. Iran has a lot of allies throughout Iraq, and not just Shia, by the way. Iran has historical ties to Kurdish parties, to Sunni parties. So Iran is able and understands Iraq in a much more nuanced, networked way, and is able to manage and navigate through these networks to, to ensure that, that it has some kind of influence. I don't want to overstate Iran's influence, and I think that Iran is, is not you know, uh, omnipotent or, or, or all-powerful in, in Iraq. It has many issues, but certainly um, you know, it's allowed to be as powerful as it is because of the networks of corruption within Iraq that also benefit from that. And I think that Iraqis uh, are, are beginning to see that. And, and, and so the corruption is, is so big. I remember um, years ago, and I think it was the, the protests in, in, in Baghdad in 2015 and 16, one of, and, and keep in mind, this is at the height of ISIS, controlling o- almost a third of Iraq's territory. In Baghdad, people are protesting. They're not protesting against ISIS, but they're protesting against their own leaders. And they're not only protesting against their own leaders, but there was one slogan that struck me, and that was a slogan that said, the terrorist equals the corrupt. And so corruption is by, by far the biggest grievance uh, that, that many Iraqis have. And they're now beginning to associate corruption with lack of electricity, lack of water, and, and a decent sort of standard of living. On the electricity front, I'm just wondering, and there have been initiatives from the Saudis, could they play a, a kind of counterbalance role to Iranian influence with projects like the Energy Grid Initiative, which could end Iraq's reliance on Iran? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and, and the Saudis have, you know, certainly been, been working on, on, on this front, supported and backed by the Americans and others who would want to see Iraq kind of move away from the over-reliance on Iran. I think the challenge becomes the same challenge that we're talking about of a reformist prime minister like Al-Khavami. I think that the challenge becomes that the, the Saudis just don't have uh, the connectivity to state power in Iraq that Iran does. So the Saudis can come with an initiative, they can try something like this, but it, it will remain kind of an island, kind of uh, a far away from where power, where the, the negotiations and bargaining for power are actually being done. And so the key then becomes, how can these initiatives be based on a way that could navigate the very complex political environment in Iraq to allow them to sustain themselves rather than for you know, one director general or one official in the Iraqi state to immediately stop an initiative like this from, from going on. So, so I think that these initiatives can work, certainly, and I think it's important to end Iraq's reliance on, on Iran for gas, but it, it will take, I think, a lot of time uh, and a lot of effort to pursue that. And in the meantime, uh, we shouldn't assume that ISIS has simply gone away. It's still a threat. How big a concern is it, and how is the central government coping with that threat? Yeah, I mean, as as we said at the time as well, the kind of fight against ISIS uh, was a military fight, and the victory was a military victory. There wasn't a political or socioeconomic plan or victory to go alongside, right? And so those are the roots of why ISIS emerged in the first place. There are very real socioeconomic and political problems 
rotten at the core of the Iraqi state. And those problems have not been addressed. You can easily declare mission accomplished. And mission accomplished has very famously been declared, not just by George W. Bush six weeks after the invasion in 2003, but by every subsequent American president and Iraqi prime minister. There's always been victories. There's always been military victories. You can, you can use the fight against ISIS was almost the entire world fighting against a few thousand Salafi jihadi fighters. I mean, there was going to be a military victory. But if you don't couple that with a political and, 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 as I say, social and economic solution for the people who live in those areas, conflict will continue. Uh, it may transform for a while, but it will continue. I remember when I went to Mul sort of after the, the liberation, the people were, you know, obviously traumatized and had gone through a lot, but they certainly were excited to be free from ISIS and to be back to Iraq, to the Iraqi state. And Mosul had, you know, one of the largest voter turnouts in the first election after ISIS in 2018. If you go to Mosul today, I mean, I haven't been for over a year, but, you know, even when I was going then, what I hear from people now, the people will say, from the day of our liberation until today, we still haven't seen our government. Instead, we've seen all these different armed groups that are profiting off of the, the victory. So I would say that it's very concerning that the roots of ISIS have yet to even be touched or addressed. And just to sort of the final point on this, this is not to say that we should expect anytime soon something like a caliphate to reemerge, because that was a very kind of extraordinary event. And, and, and the scars and, and damages from that are still sort of rest large, loom large in the Iraqi psyche. However, I think what we should expect at least is, of course, that ISIS is not over. ISIS is still there. It's still an underground organization and that it will continue to, to stage attacks. What we know about ISIS is that it's a very dynamic organization that could be both a state and an insurgency um, and, and, and many other types of organizations. And so I think that's what we see. And, and, and earlier this year, we saw uh, an, an explosion in central Baghdad killing 30 or so uh, civilians. So I would say that definitely the threat from ISIS is still very much uh, present. And as you've said, the difficulties that the economy faces in, in combating ISIS are similar to the difficulties it faces in combating uh, corruption and dealing with the Hashtra uh, Shabi. Uh, of course, 2003, the war, I'm thinking Donald Rumsfeld passed away. He was an architect of that war that is a terrible legacy, really, that America has left. Now, we have a Biden administration that seems bent on continuing the policy of previous administrations, going back to President Obama, to disengage the, uh, the pivot to the East. America's walking away from the terrible legacy. What, uh, what are the implications uh, of that for Iraq? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's, it, this is not the first administration to, to claim to be pivoting to, to, to the East and, and to leaving the Middle East. And, and, and I think even in the next few years, it'll be hard to see um, the U.S. completely disengaging or not seeing Iraq or the region as a, as, as a, as a priority. Uh, just a few days ago, the U.S. launched uh, airstrikes, again, attacks on 
the Iraqi-Syrian uh, border against some of the the militias. So I I, I don't see this engagement as happen as disengagement as as happening anytime soon. My biggest concern with the Biden administration is actually a lack of coherent strategy. It's a team of people who have very clear uh, uh, and 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 subs- sort of substantiated views on what should be done, but they don't really have a strategy. And so I think just like previous administrations, when a shock happens anywhere in the region, if not Iraq, uh, you know, somewhere else, they'll be scrambling. And we, be, we kind of saw that with what happened in Gaza earlier this year, this kind of, oh, what do we do now? And, and, and so we're not beginning to see any kind of coherent strategy that could mitigate potential risks in a country like Iraq from the Biden team and the Biden administration. I think something that's important to note is that the U.S. has, over the many years, had largely a waning influence in Iraq, uh, unable to really uh, have that same type of influence that it had, obviously, after 2003. And I think this is a legacy of, of you know, you mentioned Rumsfeld has passed away. I think at the height of, two, you know, in 2003, the Rumsfeld and, and, and the neoconservatives that, that were guiding the, the Bush administration had this idea of American supremacy. And I think all of that has kind of crashed and it's become very well aware that, that the U.S. is not able and some would even argue not as interested uh, in, in pursuing genuine democracy as it is in pursuing its own strategic interests, of course. Um, but I think the bigger question here is that America has been proven unable as a country, obviously, to improve or to bring uh, democracy to Iraq. And so the legacies of Rumsfeld are, are felt, and I think most Iraqis today even those who may have supported the war in 2003 will not look favorably on, on someone like Rumsfeld and the legacies of, of a poorly managed and poorly planned invasion that led to many of the problems we've been talking about today. And finally, Renat, Iraq is such a crucial country, crucial to regional stability. And yet, as we've been discussing, very few steps are in motion to get the country functioning in a way that benefits ordinary Iraqis do you have any optimism the situation will improve and what needs to be done for that to happen <laughs> it's always it's you know it's it's always wanted but always very difficult to try and end on a <laughs> on an optimistic note when talking about some of the challenges in in Iraq as we have been doing uh, today i would say my main optimism in Iraq won't come from you know, the US or, or, or the West or from any other sort of external factor or even from uh, Iraqi leaders themselves. The only optimism I have in Iraq today is the youth and the protesters and just generally the, 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 the sort of younger population that's coming out, risking their lives and going to the streets and saying, we want something different. And, and, and the question that becomes how to channel that um, but very clearly, I think this segment of society, this young generation, they may lack the political know-how, they may lack the sort of so-called sophistication, but what they have is A, they've identified the problem at its core, which is that the problem in Iraq isn't a specific leader or a specific party, but the entire system. I think that's a, a very appropriate diagnosis of the problem. And they're basically calling for you know, some a better future. And if you look at the demographics of Iraq, it's one of the highest birth rates uh, in, in, in the region. 
I think over two thirds of Iraqis are under 25, right? So this is a generation that doesn't remember Saddam Hussein, that doesn't believe in the same political parties that continue, that came after 2003, that continue to rule, but a, a generation that more and more will begin to continue, sorry, to continue to call for, for, for change. Uh, and so that's my optimism. Uh, and that's really the only chance that's left in Iraq. Because what we've seen for the last almost two decades is an Iraqi elite that's quite content sharing the, the wealth of Iraq amongst each other without it trickling down to the population. The elite are not going to change Iraq. I think the youth are the only, the last sort of saving grace, I think, for, for proper reform in Iraq. Well, I think that's a very good note to end on. As you say, difficult to find optimism, but I think you're absolutely right to look for that in youth, in the youth of, of Iraq. Uh, Renard, thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. No, thanks for having me. I've very, very much enjoyed our conversation today. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Renad Mansour, a senior research fellow, Middle East and North Africa program, and project director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a special rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.